1: Welcome to Pax Britannica, Season 2, Episode 50, Drunk With Blood. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon, House of Lords, which has been joined by Rich, Earl of Hereford, Selina, Viscountess of Blackwell, Stav, Viscount of Sherborne, and Sam, Baron Mitchell. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time we saw the war in Ireland between the government of King Charles I and the Irish Confederacy come to an end. The Marquess of Ormond, James Butler, had finally come to an agreement with the Confederacy, as both sides were desperate to come to terms. Unfortunately, this was not an easy or a transparent process. For starters, the peace treaty was only between Ormond and the Confederates. Ormond, Mostly controlled the region around Dublin, the Pale, and the Confederates controlled large swathes of the rest of the kingdom. But in the north, in Ulster, the Covenanter forces of Robert Monroe remained at war with the Confederates, backed up by local Protestant militias. And in the south, the defection of Lord Inchiquin and Lord Broghill to the cause of the English Parliament meant that key ports and fortresses in Munster were in hostile hands. Oh, and as an added spice, the treaty between Ormond and the Confederates? Everyone was keeping it hush-hush. There were powerful factions, within both the Royalist and Confederate ranks, who had not been in favour of the treaty, and were being deliberately kept in the dark. When that news breaks, there will be hell to pay. But that's for the future, because the main reason that Ormond and the Confederate peace faction were so eager to finally come to terms was because the King's cause in England was in freefall. Last time we covered the English theatre, episode 236, the Solemn League and Covenant and the military alliance between the English Parliament and the Scottish Covenanters had just been agreed, and the cessation of arms with the Irish Confederates had allowed Irish garrison troops to return to England to fight for the king. The English Civil War became a war of three kingdoms. The Scottish Covenanters, under the experienced command of the Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, were a motivated, disciplined, and well-led force. The returning Irish troops were not. The vast majority weren't Irish, of course, but English, who'd been sent to suppress the Irish Rebellion in 1641. They hadn't signed up to fight their fellow Protestants, their fellow Englishmen, and many either deserted upon arrival or defected to Parliament. Those who stuck around were quickly defeated, killed, routed, or defected to Parliament. In stark contrast, the Covenanters enjoyed early successes in their invasion and united their forces with those of Lord Ferdinando Fairfax and his son, Sir Thomas Fairfax forging the army of both kingdoms, about 20,000 men strong. Their target certainly justified this amount of men. The city of York, the royalist capital in the north of England. The Marquess of Newcastle, the king's commander in the north, had arrived at York just days before the army of both kingdoms. York was heavily defended. A major city before the Civil War, since 1642 the defences had been reinforced with at least five purpose-built fortifications constructed surrounding the city. The garrison had plenty of food and drink, but they were short on ammunition for their weapons and cannons, and Newcastle was running out of money to pay them. Speaking of the garrison, the defenders of York were around five to 6,000 strong. They were outnumbered 4 to 1, The defences of the city would help even the odds, but there was no way the Royalist garrison could effectively drive off the army of both kingdoms on their own. As soon as Newcastle had arrived in the city, he sent off the bulk of his cavalry to join Royalist forces in the south and, for the love of God, send help. Leven and Fairfax took their time. Over the first month of the siege, they reduced those surrounding fortifications I mentioned just a moment ago. One at Stamford Bridge, that Stamford Bridge, was taken along with 80 prisoners, others were taken and either garrisoned or destroyed. But York was huge, and completely surrounding the city was made even more difficult by the two rivers, the Ouse and the Foss, which met in the city, and which blocked the besiegers' movements. Both the east and west approaches to the city were covered by the besieging army, and Leven and Fairfax sent riders of their own to request the aid of the Earl of Manchester. He agreed to join the siege, arriving on the 3rd of June with his own army, plugging the northern gap. Boat bridges were constructed to connect the three forces and allow communication, and cavalry was dispatched further afield to clear out the remaining Royalist garrisons. Two days after Manchester's arrival, the assault properly began. Leaven led his men in the west, and Manchester in the north, marching towards the city walls and making a grand spectacle. This was to distract the bulk of the defenders long enough for Fairfax's force to rush forward and establish two artillery batteries, one on Windmill Hill and the other on Walmgate Bar. The next day, Manchester's force captured a portion of the suburbs and began to dig a mine under the walls. The day after that, Leven's Covenanters captured three more of the outer fortifications, this time in the southwest, though a Royalist Sally managed to recapture the largest one. Newcastle then ordered another Sally, this time to set fire to the suburbs of the city, to deny shelter to the besiegers. Newcastle's priority, like so many defenders across history, was to play for time. He knew that Prince Rupert of the Rhine, one of the Royalists' most effective military leaders, was on the way. Rupert had been urging his uncle, the King, to send him on a northern campaign for weeks. Charles had been resistant. News had arrived on the siege, and the Royalist position in the north looked like it was on the brink of collapse without assistance. But this war was not going to be won in the north. It would be won in the south with the capture or threatened capture of london london centrism am i right but the king did have a point and he wanted to conserve vital resources in the south but rupert won him over and in mid may 1644 he set out from shrewsbury with 8000 men with the twin goals of restoring the royalist position in lancashire and then relieving the siege of york when rupert arrived in lancashire he took one look at the fortified city of Manchester, not yet the metropolis of the Industrial Revolution, but still a significant settlement, and decided to simply bypass it. That might have been for the best for the people of Manchester, because Rupert's first actual target, Bolton, did not enjoy his visit. Rupert's army, now bolstered by the arrival of the Earl of Derby, Lord of Man, arrived outside Bolton on the 28th of May. Bolton's defenders numbered around two and a half thousand men, and they were fortified with an earthen embankment. But they faced around twelve thousand men, and Rupert had no time for a long siege, and even refused to open negotiations for a peaceful surrender. His first assault was turned away by a stoic defence by the garrison and a timely bit of rain, but the second assault, with Van Moore leading the spearhead, overwhelmed the defenders and the Royalists poured into the town. What followed was, undeniably, a massacre, far beyond what was expected on the fall of a town, and notable even by the low standards of a civil war. The victorious besiegers refused, quote, "'Quarter to any, whether soldiers or men in their houses, till the sword, drunk with blood, was sheathed.'" Parliament made hay over the sack, with one account claiming that, Nothing heard but kill dead, kill dead was the word in the town, killing all before them, without any respect. Their horsemen pursuing the poor amazed people, killing, stripping, and spoiling all they could meet with. Nothing regarding the doleful cries of women and children, but some they slashed as they were calling for quarter, others when they had given quarter. Many hailed out of their houses to have their brains dashed out in the streets. But I forbear many sad things that might be inserted. The usage of children crying for their fathers, of women crying for their husbands, some of them brought on purpose to be slain before their wives' faces. The rending, tearing, and turning of the people naked, the robbing and spoiling of all the people of all things that they could carry. Now, this is a parliamentarian pamphlet, so several pinches of salt are needed, and we can't take it completely at its word especially on all the details. But the total number of deaths was, Peter Gaunt estimates, between 1,000 and possibly as high as 2,000 people, with more than 600 more taken prisoner and carried away from whatever ruin the royalist army had made of their homes, families, and lives. The Earl of Derby, who had played such a visible role in the assault on Bolton, would come to regret it, Spoilers for a future episode, but after the Third English Civil War, yes, there's two more to come, Darby would be convicted of treason, taken to Bolton, and executed at the site of the massacre he had played a role in. With Bolton in flames, and its citizens either dead, captured, or traumatised, Rupert moved on, recruiting as he went, aided by the local Stanley links which Darby held. His next target was Liverpool, which was also yet to take its place as one of the key cities of the British Empire and slave trade, but it was still a valuable port. Rupert set up his mortars and ordered the earthworks bombarded. Parliamentarian ships from the (laughs) Royal Navy delivered reinforcements and new supplies, but by the 12th of June it was clear to the defenders that the fortifications were crumbling under the bombardment and they began to evacuate to the ships. That night, in the wee hours of the morning, Rupert's men stormed the town. Another sack took place, though not to the same brutal extent as Bolton. Their next stop was Latham House, the seat of the Earl of Derby. Latham House had been held by Derby's wife, Countess Charlotte. Countess Charlotte had stayed behind at Latham House when her husband had gone to the Isle of Man, and it had soon come under parliamentary siege. Latham was no ordinary two-up, two-down. Latham was a serious stronghold. It had a moat, thick and high walls, and nine towers. It was more a castle than a stately home. The Countess reportedly played the man at Latham, according to parliamentary writers, and they mocked that her husband had fled to the Isle of Man, leaving her wearing his trousers. Throughout the months, she had led her militia in a valiant defence, holding off the local parliamentary armies. The situation turned after the Battle of Nantwich in January 1644, and the Parliamentary Council in Manchester decided that Latham House had to be dealt with, while Sir Thomas Fairfax's army was in the region. On the 27th of February, Fairfax had Latham House surrounded. Countess Charlotte played for time. Dragging out negotiations for her surrender until the 11th of March, Charlotte was no shrinking violet. Yes, Mr. Fairfax might have thousands of armed men surrounding her house, and yes, she was outnumbered heavily. But she was of the greatest of European nobility. She had kings, and dukes, and statholders among her ancestors, and this was her house, and Mr. Fairfax would bloody well defer to her. In the negotiations, She was contemptuous of Fairfax's officers, and insisted that Fairfax wait upon her, since she was so far above him socially. Now, I'm not a fan of aristocratic haughtiness, but I can't help but admire the Countess in this situation. She's facing down an army, and I'm sure she was terrified of the danger she and her family were in. But hell would freeze over before she allowed it to show. When negotiations broke down, either because Fairfax realised she was buying time, or he was just sick of being talked down to, Latham House was fully invested by the besieging army. Countess Charlotte commanded a force of around 300 men, and she held out for 11 weeks. She rallied her men, and after Fairfax was ordered to move on into Yorkshire to link up with Leven's Scots, he left enough soldiers to continue the siege. Charlotte's garrison repeatedly sallied forth, raiding the siege lines and keeping the besiegers on the defensive on the twenty fifth of April. The garrison actually captured a mortar which had been bombarding the walls and essentially removed any chance for the parliamentarians to take Latham House by force when the news of Rupert's imminent arrival with Charlotte's husband in tow reached the siege lines on twenty sixth of May, the parliamentarians were forced to withdraw and lift the siege. Reunited with Derby, Rupert presented the unconquered Countess with 22 enemy standards taken at Bolton from regiments which had besieged her home. Patrons of the rank of Earl and above will find a bonus episode in their feed covering the life of the Earl of Derby and his wife, Countess Charlotte. Rupert was on a roll when a letter from his uncle arrived. Charles congratulated his nephew's successors and then said, "'But now I must give you the true state of my affairs, "'which, if their condition be such as enforces me "'to give you more peremptory commands than I would willingly do, "'you must not take it ill. "'If York be lost, I shall esteem my crown little less, "'unless supported by your sudden march to me "'and a miraculous conquest in the south, "'before the effects of their northern power can be found here. "'But if York be relieved,' And you beat the rebels' army of both kingdoms which are before it, then, but otherwise not, I may make a shift upon the defensive to spin out time until you come to assist me. Wherefore I command and conjure you, by the duty and affection which I know you bear me, that all new enterprises laid aside, you immediately march, according to your first intention, with all your force to the relief of York. But if that be either lost, or have freed themselves from the besiegers, or that, from want of powder, you cannot undertake that work, that you immediately march with your whole strength directly to Worcester to assist me and my army." I wanted to read that source almost the entire letter, because Charles' letter to Rupert and the orders he gives in it will hang over the prince for the rest of his life. Keen-eared listeners might also have noticed that the king suggested that if Rupert couldn't complete his northern objectives, he should march south to join him at Worcester. Why Worcester? Worcester is lovely, don't get me wrong, but it isn't where Charles had his court. That was Oxford. What happened to Oxford? Well, Parliament happened to Oxford.
0: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.
1: Early in May, the committee of both kingdoms proposed a two-pronged offensive against the king in the south. Sir William the Conqueror Waller would have his army, reinforced up to 10,000 men, and ordered to capture the key city of Reading. This guarded the approach to Oxford from London, and vice versa, making controlling it a priority for both king and parliament. As Waller took Reading, the Earl of Wessex would lead his own field army, on a march to capture the King's capital of Oxford. Waller would then support Essex. On the 14th of May, the offensive began, and the King's council decided to withdraw the small garrisons surrounding Oxford, removing them from Reading and from Abingdon, despite the King himself urging that they remain. Parliamentarian troops occupied these places in short order. Three days later, Essex and Waller began to manoeuvre around Oxford. Essex moved along its eastern side, and prepared to attack the city from the north, while Waller divided his army into two, with half guarding the west and south of the city respectively. With parliamentary control of the east, and these armies surrounding the other three sides of the city, Oxford risked being completely surrounded. The Royalists were not about to just surrender, though. Repeatedly, Parliamentarian vanguards attempted to seize key bridges and positions around Oxford, and repeatedly, the Royalists defeated them, and forced them back with determined firepower from infantry and artillery. Some of Waller's forces finally met with success when they crossed the Thames at Newbridge, eight miles west of Oxford. After they secured the bridge and repaired it, Waller's army made it across the river. Now the king's capital could be directly assaulted, and with God's grace, Parliament would win this damnable civil what, what do you mean Essex says to wait because that's exactly what happened. Essex sent a message to Waller, ordering him to hold back from the city. Presumably he had valid military reasons for this order. The other parts of the army needed time to get into position. Waller was without support, etc etc. But I can't shake the impression that this was once again Essex and Waller's rivalry getting in the way. The idea that Waller might win the war must have physically hurt Essex. So, for military reasons or for personal ones, or a mix of both, Waller was held back, and a gap remained in the parliamentary encirclement. For the king and his court, a difficult decision was on the table. The circle was closing, and there was no significant royalist force that could quickly relieve Oxford. A prolonged siege wouldn't be possible. They had enough supplies for a fortnight at most. So the king decided to flee the noose, with most of the cavalry and as many infantry as could keep up, and leave the rest to hold the city against the parliamentary armies, since the supplies would last longer. On the night of the 3rd of June, He led his army out of Oxford, heading west and slipping between Waller and Essex's armies. The two generals, alerted the following morning that the king had in fact escaped, set off after him. For two days, they marched along separate paths, until the two rivals met at Chipping Norton on the 6th of June. Here, Waller and Essex had a passionate exchange of views. Waller asked How on earth Essex had failed to cross a narrow river so many times, and so let the king escape? Essex, to quote Lipscomb, was in no mood to take lessons in tactical river crossings from Waller. Essex took his ball and went home. He wasn't going to chase the king, not if it meant working with Waller. He announced he was going south to relieve the siege of Lyme Regis by Prince Maurice. This was a decision. When the news reached London of what Essex was doing, giving up the chance of capturing the king to lead his army on a side quest, the committee for both kingdoms was furious. They immediately sent riders with orders for Essex to get back in line, turn around and think of the wider picture, but by the time they reached him, he was already en route to Lyme Regis, and he just carried on. Waller was thrilled to lose the interfering and incompetent Essex, and threw himself back into the pursuit. The king reached Worcester, and then learnt that his pursuers had, for some reason, lost half their number. This made direct confrontation not just possible, but preferable to continued retreat. And Charles turned around, leading Waller on a chase through the Cotswolds. Seriously, Lipscomb's map of these manoeuvres is a real mess, and that's not a fault of his. These armies were dancing. Eventually, Waller, blocked by destroyed bridges over the Severn, diverted elsewhere. Making it back to Oxford, the King had to be talked out of another advance on London. The risk of Waller or Essex taking them in the flank as the Royalists faced down the trained bands was too great. Instead, the two armies continued their merry dance, each trying to get the other to commit to a battle in their own favour. Eventually, the two armies, each roughly 9,000 men strong, met near banbury on the 29th of june they faced each other on opposite sides of the river cherwell charles successfully baited waller into the offensive by ordering a portion of his troops to move northeast when waller saw the royalists apparently spread too far apart he gave the order to attack his forces crossed the river at three points one of which gives us the name of the battle the battle of Cropperty bridge Essex was perhaps right to mock Waller's opinion on river crossings. The Royalists blocked the Parliamentarian attack on all fronts and soon countered with an attack which captured eleven of Waller's artillery pieces. The Parliamentarian general, darling of the presses, could only withdraw his army back to where they had started. Both armies watched each other, occasionally firing cannon at the other side, until night fell. Waller ordered the retreat. The king was away. So, the letter to Rupert had been written while the king was somewhat occupied. On the run and in a panic, his words were not as clear as usual. He even apologised to Rupert for that. But the prince took it at face value, despite its ambiguity. To him, his orders were clear he would march on York, relieve it, and bring the army of both kingdoms to battle because that was how he read the orders. Reportedly, he would keep this letter for the rest of his life, just in case he needs to defend his judgement for what happens at Marston Moor. Next time, we will see what happens at Marston Moor. Since our last episode, I attended and moderated talks at the Intelligent Speech Conference, so I had a front row seat to some brilliant history podcasts. I've listened to Eric Halsey's History of Bulgaria for years at this point, but this was the first time we met. His talk on the Circassian people of the Caucasus, who held off the Russian Empire for an entire century, surviving incredibly brutal and genocidal acts by their larger neighbours, was fascinating and a very sad tale. Hopefully, Eric transforms that talk into an episode of the History of Bulgaria, even though Bulgarians only appear in the story for a very small moment. I also really enjoyed the father and son team of Curiosity of a Child. Richard and Anton gave a great presentation on the Spanish Empire's efforts to vaccinate their colonies against smallpox. They shipped 22 orphans around the world as incubators for cowpox. It was a great talk, complete with an edible arm, and Curiosity of a Child is a unique, family-friendly podcast that I absolutely recommend. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's Favourite Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Marquess of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, and the Earl of Montgomery, David Montgomery. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you know someone who you think would find Pax Britannica interesting, please tell them about it. Word of mouth is still the best way for any podcast to grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.
0: You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.